I, I've, been, I've grown up in the church my whole life, and something I've been struck by is I've been a, spent a fair amount of time in Christian bookstores and looking through um, things like Christian um, book distributors, things with CBD, you know, you can look for, for these things. And I have seen over the years about a million books on giftedness. And I've seen about a million books on leadership in the church. I, I really struggle to think of a time when I saw a book that said, this is who you're not. <laughs> in other words, this is a book on your giftedness, how to figure out how you're gift, who you're gifted to be. But I've scarcely ever, maybe never, seen a book that said, this is definitely who you're not and how to find out who you're not. And I think there's a needed book on that. I think both are from God for our joy. And as many times as I've seen books on Christian leadership... I don't even think we have a word for followership. Is that a thing? Is that a thing we talk about, think about? Are there books about how to be a good non-leader? I don't know. It's kind of one of those pet peeves I have about Christians. We talk about giftedness and leadership, but not the other side. Who am I not? And how do I become a better at following another's lead? Uh, this is a difficult thing, I think, and it, for for the church to talk about. I, I point all that out, not because we're going to be talking about those other things tonight, this morning, sorry, but uh, because we're going to be talking about leadership. And one of the things I want you to see about leadership, I'm going to be talking about in a minute, is this is not a conversation for a small subset of Christians. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. We've been working our way uh, through the small New Testament book of Philemon. Philemon is only 17 sentences long. It only takes up about half of a page in my Bible. It's a very small, short little letter between the Apostle Paul and his good friend Philemon. And the way we've been approaching our study of Philemon so far is that Paul sets an example for us of what it looks like to live out the gospel in many significant areas of life. The gospel, of course, is one of those words that Christians use that maybe not everyone understands its meaning, but the gospel means simply good news. It's the good news that God made a way for lost sinners to be saved through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. God's word tells us that when a person puts their trust in Jesus for their salvation, they have been helped to see, the eyes of their heart have been opened to see, that their sins when all of us are sinners, had cut them off from God and that they were under judgment. Ephesians 2 describes fallen human beings as objects of wrath. But the good news is that Jesus died on the cross as our substitute. Even though Jesus was perfect and without sin, he took our place there under God's wrath so that we might be saved and live forever. Jesus took our punishment, and we receive his reward. This is the great transaction at the heart of the gospel, the good news of how God saves fallen human beings. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is the good news, the gospel. However, the gospel... This good news is not just something that a person believes 
and gives mental assent to. No one who truly embraces these truths walks away from them blessed, but unchanged. Whenever the gospel truly finds purchase in a person's heart and it flourishes there, this happens through a supernatural movement of the Holy Spirit. And whenever that happens, the gospel will be seen as something more than just true, but as excellent, as good, and precious. A Christian is someone who knows the truth and loves the truth of it. We're all becoming what we worship. What we revere will, in the end, we will resemble more and more. So as we've pointed out on our previous Sundays together, Paul, in his letter to Philemon, does not argue for the gospel per se. He and Philemon are on the same page about that, about the necessity and the excellent goodness of how God is saving fallen human beings. Paul and Philemon have both embraced that good news personally. They agree on that. So no, unlike many of his other letters, like Galatians, for example, or Romans, or really any of his other letters, Paul doesn't spend any time arguing for the gospel per se, but rather he argues for things in light of the gospel. And that's the upshot of how we've been approaching this fantastic little book. And this morning, I want us to see what lessons Philemon holds for us about gospel-shaped leadership. Again, this is a subject that is talked about too much, maybe, in the church, maybe at the expense of another needed conversation, which is, how should I, Josh Tate, submit and follow the lead of others? However, this is the topic we're going to be taking up this morning, and it is an important one. We're all leaders in various ways. Uh, I think, broadly speaking, leadership amounts to being a person of influence. Leif Erikson, the famous Viking Age explorer, once said, We are all leaders whether we want to be or not. There is always someone we are influencing, either leading them to good or away from good. Aubrey Malfers, if you don't view Leif Erikson as an authority on such things, Aubrey Malfers, who's a pastor, author, and scholar on biblical leadership and leadership development in the church, he says, influence is the key word in, defining, in, in any definition of leadership. I bring your attention to this definition of leadership because I want us all to see here at the front end of our study this morning that when we talk about the leadership lessons in Philemon, we are not discussing something that pertains only to church leaders and pastors or to a small subset of people within the church. Uh, these lessons might be particularly true for those kind of folks, but we would be making a mistake, a big one, if we limited the application of these sorts of lessons to people who have that kind of calling on their lives. We're taking up a topic that is applicable to most everyone in the church. You may not think of yourself as a leader, but as Leif Erikson put it, if there is someone that you are influencing, either leading them to good or away from good, you're a leader today, and these lessons are for you. Now, this is an important to topic for Christians to grapple with because, as J. Oswald Sanders points out in his book, Spiritual Leadership, 
If those who hold influence over others fail to lead toward the spiritual uplands, then surely the path to the lowlands will be well-worn. The need for courageous Christian leadership in all those nooks and crannies where God has granted His people a sphere of influence is desperately needed today. Do you remember how Jesus described the negative leadership of the Pharisees in Matthew 15? He said, "...they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit." And I think many today are being led by the hand down, down, down into that broad road that leads to destruction. The path to the lowlands is well-worn. But fellow Christian, how are you going to spend your influence in those areas where God has granted you a place of influence? How does a gospel-shaped leadership differ from other forms of leading people that we see in the world? I want to concentrate this morning on just a few different lessons that we see in Philemon, but I could unpack many, many more, and I'm going to spare you many, many more (laughs) because we've already touched on these in different ways on other Sundays. For example, we've already talked about love as the governing ethic for God's people. Love is so necessary to authentic biblical leadership among God's people, doing all things with love. And we see here that Paul, in his letter, loves Philemon, and he loves Onesimus. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. He cares. Uh, I think an authentic, biblical, Christian church leadership should always have, as a component of the conversation, feeling. People are not objects to be utilized, but they're people that we care for and are in relationship with, and that's present here. We've talked about that. We've also talked on multiple Sundays about the superiority of appeals over commands. The ends do not justify the means among God's people in the church. There's many ways that we might use to get people to do a thing in the church, but Paul models for us a leadership style that appeals to shared values that calls people to lead them by their desire to act in worshipful ways that reveal a love for the truth and a love for God and a love for God's people. So we talked about that on previous Sundays. I won't talk any more about it this morning. There's the importance of knowing the sheep. Uh, Paul knows Philemon. He knows Onesimus. And already in this series, we've talked about the good reputation of Philemon, that he loves the saints, he loves righteousness, and he's an example of godliness to the church that meets in his home. And this illustrates the very important biblical principle that more important than what a leader does, his accomplishments, is who he is in the privacy of his heart. I remember one time when I was working at Camp Maranatha uh, in Southern California, we were having one of those, anytime groups of people work together, there's going to be bad times. <laughs> it just isn't going well. And that particular weekend, for whatever reason, there was a lot going on. We were kind of at each other's throat. And we had a big group coming in that weekend, about 300 campers. We had to get the food out in the cafeteria. And so all these people who really on that day just really couldn't stand each other got together. And by hook and crook, my goodness, we fed all those 300 campers. But at our staff meeting on Tuesday, when we all got together, 
uh, a very wise woman, Nancy Beggs, pointed out, we fed 300 campers, but we failed to honor God. And she's right. Uh, More important than our accomplishments in the church or what a leader brings about, brings into existence, makes happen, the buses running on time, more important than all of that is who we be. If you go to those um, qualifications for leadership in the church found in Timothy and Titus, all of them are character traits. It's all about character. And I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on that at all, but again, we've already talked about that here in Philemon, and I don't want to belabor the point. These are all important leadership lessons in and of themselves, and I'm sure there are more besides. However, what I feel led to focus on in our time together this morning is the way that a gospel-shaped leadership is defined by a new way of looking up, looking out, and looking within. Pastors always love those catchy three-point, you know, hang a sermon off of that. Here's the first one, looking up. A gospel-shaped leadership points to a higher authority. Uh, people who are power-hungry who are, or who desperately want to be perceived as important and a real somebody will often point to themselves as an authority. But as we read through Philemon, we see that Paul, in the way he communicates to Philemon, is not saying that he, Paul, is an authority, but that he represents the authority, Jesus. And to my mind, that's a huge difference. We see this elsewhere in the Bible, too. We see this elsewhere in Paul's leadership. During Paul's first missionary journey, for example, among the Galatians, he and his fellow missionary Barnabas were in the Galatian city of Lystra, and there's a man sitting there. You can read about this in Acts 14. He has withered legs. And they heal this man. And the Galatians are so amazed, as you can imagine they would be, that kind of like when uh, in Return of the Jedi, when they start worshiping C-3PO as God because of he does all these amazing things, the Galatians actually say, Paul and Barnabas must be Zeus and Hermes. They think that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul Hermes, that's because Paul is the spokesperson. And they actually start to try and worship Paul and Barnabas as these Greek gods. They're preparing to worship them. A priest came from the temple of Zeus with an ox to sacrifice. But then we read this, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, the gospel, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice how Paul described himself to the Galatians in this encounter. He says, I'm a man of like nature with you. And then he quickly shifts the focus back to the God who had sent him and the message he'd been given to deliver to them. And this is the stuff, really, of Christian leadership. Paul only has authority insofar as he stands under the authority of God. He's only making sense insofar as he represents truly the heart of God, the Word of God. Paul has no authority of his own, and neither do we. 
The best a Christian leader can do is to function as a living reminder of Jesus, the King, someone who reminds others of He from whom all authority flows. And this is true if you are in a position of influence, great or small today. We are called to point people through our words, through our lives, in all things, to the one who is a higher authority than us. Paul identifies his friend as a beloved fellow worker. Fellow worker. That description of Philemon as a fellow rather than his underling puts them on equal footing before the throne. Paul views Philemon not as one of his workers, but as a fellow worker. In the kingdom's org chart, they're fellows. In the opening lines of this letter, Paul calls Jesus Lord multiple times. And even when he invokes his apostolic authority in verse 8, he is careful to note that this authority is on loan from Christ. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, and then he goes on to explain he prefers rather to appeal to him. But the operative phrase in that verse is, in Christ. One other indicator that we see in Philemon of this truth, that gospel-shaped leadership points to a higher authority, is the way that Paul bookends the body of this brief letter with prayer. Prayer is the act of calling on one who is higher, mightier, more needed than any human being at all. Prayer is a tacit confession that there is a higher authority. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, apart from me you can do nothing. The presence of prayer throughout this letter, and you know, pound for pound, there might be more prayer per capita in Philemon than any other book of the Bible. The presence of prayer throughout this letter is, is the sort of gospel-shaped leader that points toward him, not toward himself, but toward a higher authority, namely the Lord Jesus. So here's what I want us to take away from this point, first point. You're a, you're a leader today. I am sure that there are people in your life for whom you are influential. You have been granted a place of influence in their life. And the question I walk away from is, do they see in me somebody who is eager to point them toward a higher authority? Are my efforts to influence those people marked by prayer? Do I believe that, that God is necessary to lead them along? Do I often point them to God? Or do I point to myself as the source of wisdom? Do I point to myself as the source of authority, or do I make an appeal on shared values with my fellow believer? So that's the first thing we have to see here, is that Paul's leadership and the leadership that Paul is encouraging Philemon to embrace in his relationship with Onesimus is marked by an understanding that there is someone higher than these human leaders. And this leads us naturally to our second observation which is that when we look up at God, uh, it changes the way that we look outward at one another. Gospel-shaped leadership is marked by a new way of looking on others. One of the key, great literary devices that Paul uses to, un, to pack sort of a rhetorical punch in this letter to Philemon is his use of contrast. 
In verses 8 and 9, for example, he contrasts commands with making an appeal. In verse 11, he contrasts useful with useless. In verses 12 and 13, he contrasts sending with keeping. In the next verse, he contrasts doing something under compulsion versus doing it of your own accord. And in the next verse, he contrasts for a while with forever. And most famously in verse 16, he contrasts slave with beloved brother. I was kind of late in seeing this repeated use of contrast throughout the letter. If I had seen it earlier, we might have devoted a message each to each of these thoughts. But taken as a whole, they do wonderfully describe a gospel-shaped way of living and relating to one another in the church. But here's something that's worth noting about how Paul spends his influence, his leadership in this letter. Take a look at verse 16, where Paul exhorts Philemon to receive Onesimus back no longer as a bondservant or slave, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. The gospel not only opens our eyes to see Jesus for who he is, it not only gives us a truer view of ourselves and a new identity in Christ, the gospel also causes us to look on others differently, to see others differently. Whereas before, Onesimus was merely a slave, now he is more than that. He is a beloved brother. This is one more use of contrast in the letter. We could say merely a slave, and now he's more than that. He's a beloved brother. The word that Paul uses is more than, and the merely is sort of implied. He doesn't actually write it, but it's there, I think, in, the, in his meaning. What all this means is that gospel-shaped efforts to influence others will involve a different way of looking at people. Leadership really doesn't begin in the church with getting a person to do a desired thing. <laughs> it, it begins with looking on, on, on them differently. Remember when um, Samuel was called to pick one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king to replace Saul? And God says to his prophet, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Uh, we need to always remember this, that God is not impressed with the things we pull off. God is honored with the heart motive in the midst of the pulling off. And when we're talking about biblical leadership, oftentimes the way towards what is closest to God's heart changes with... Uh, is brought about by a sea change in the way that we look upon one another and the people that we are working with. Christians should relate to one another in a way that recognizes the work of Christ in that other person's life. And thereby they come to no longer view one another in worldly terms, merely this or merely that, as objects to be utilized or rejected for personal gain. People are looked upon as the objects of God's passion, brothers and sisters, candidates for salvation who God is pursuing. When Paul sets aside his authority to command Philemon and instead makes an appeal based on love, Paul is really making a statement about how he views Philemon. He is saying that Paul here is affirming Philemon's freedom, that he's a free moral agent that he's a worshiper of God, that he's somebody who possesses the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
He is saying that he's somebody who is guided by right and wrong, truth. Paul affirms Philemon's freedom and his ability to make Christ-honoring decisions even in the midst of difficult, trying circumstances. And when Paul speaks of... And when Paul appeals for Onesimus as his own child and his very heart, who ought to be embraced not merely as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, Paul elevates Onesimus and recognizes him as a fellow brother in Christ. Paul thereby places all three primary actors, himself, Philemon, and Onesimus, even lowly Onesimus, on the same level before the throne. All three are equal as humans and as Christians, and they must treat one another as such. The gospel trains us to move beyond the merely, which is the carnal, earthbound way of looking on others. It would have been normal in that culture in that day to look upon Onesimus as merely a slave, merely a runaway, merely useless, merely a thief, maybe. Looking on others as the sum total of their economic status, or their gifting, or their attractiveness, or any of a thousand other ways that we have of classifying one another, and instead elevate that person in our thinking to something more than that, a brother, a sister, the object of God's love and concern. And this is made real when gospel-shaped Christians lay aside whatever rights we have to command and to lord our authority over another, and instead come alongside one another in weakness and love, recognizing the work of Christ in our brother and sister. This spirit of humility is perhaps best expressed, at least to my mind, in Philippians 2.3, where we're told, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, I think the operative word in that sentence is count others more significant than yourselves. I don't think Paul's counsel to Philemon is really take a hard look at Onesimus and you'll see that he's more significant than you. The charge is to count him as more, whether he is or not. Move from the merely to the more than. Before he was merely a slave, but now he's more than that. He's your brother. And you're called to, uh, in your interactions with him, your dealings with him, to treat him as such. And I think in, when we're talking about leadership in the church, this is so important. To look upon one another not as somebody to be used towards a desired end, but as a free moral agent, as a child of God, as a brother or sister, as somebody that God is shaping and directing towards good things, and you're part of the conversation. God has granted you a place of influence in their life to move them along uh, towards what's closest to God's heart. And then lastly, we look within. Uh, I think in Philemon, we're shown what it looks like for a leader to point to a higher authority, the way that the gospel changes the way we view others, and it also changes the way we see ourselves. Uh, any gospel-shaped lesson in leadership begins with the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, you might remember the account that is preserved for us in three of the gospel accounts, Matthew 20, Mark 10, Luke 22, of the time when James and John came to Jesus with a self-serving request. 
that they would be promoted above the other disciples, and one would be allowed to sit at his right hand and one at his left in glory. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've read through the gospel accounts, you're probably familiar with this story. James and John, who are two of his disciples, come to Jesus. Uh, at least one account, gospel account says it's their mom who comes to him with the request. And the request is this, Jesus, clearly we're the best two guys on your team. When you come into your glory, when you are shown to be the Messiah, King in Jerusalem, grant that we would be grant given the places of honor, one at your right hand, one at your left hand. And this prompted Jesus to answer in this way, Mark 10, 42 through 45. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, when I was first graduated from college, I decided I wanted to be, go into law enforcement. I've shared with you guys before that I consider those years in law enforcement my first seminary class. I grew up with every spiritual benefit, a mom and dad who loved the Lord, and they, I was really kind of sheltered, kind of naive, and God wanted me to see some things. For about four years straight, I saw some pretty nasty stuff. One of the things, though, that was interesting to me, I, when I got hired on at the police department I worked for, the man who hired me was a guy named Dave DeMag. Dave DeMag had an incredible reputation in law enforcement in that state, sterling, He'd written books that were required reading at the academy, and that was going to be my boss. And when I got there, Dave DeMag was one of those real sticklers. If you got out of the cruiser, you had to have your Stetson on. Your boots had to be polished. Your paperwork had to be top-notch. If it wasn't, he'd send it back and have you redo it, have you come in on your own hours afterwards and redo your affidavits and stuff. He was a, he was a real strict guy, and the department looked like Dave DeMag. Everything was shiny. Everything was right and proper. Every officer did what they should or they got punished. <laughs> About a few months into my time there, Dave DeMag left for another post. He went to another city and became head of that department and, and promoted from within with a, another guy. It was kind of one of those union promotions. The man who replaced him um, didn't wear a bulletproof vest because yeah, it was hot and his chest hair puffed out the top of his uniform. He wore cowboy boots instead of police boots. His paperwork was always bad. One thing that happened that was amazing to me is that overnight, that police department changed. None of Dave DeMag's policies were rescinded. They were all on the books. If you went to our manual, our policies, it would have been just as Dave DeMag laid it out. But that department changed 100% overnight. Why? Well, the truth is, if I got up that morning and I was tired and I did not feel like polishing my boots, all I had to say to myself was the new guy doesn't even wear police boots. He wears cowboy boots. And man, this, it's 2 in the morning and I'm tired. I want to go home. This affidavit isn't the greatest, but... All I had to do was, man, he, his paperwork is worse than this. I point all that out because what Jesus does here 
in this conversation with these two men is he points them to the, the top of the org chart for us as Christians. The truth is that in any organization, that organization will start to look like the leader. This is why it's so important that we start with, we point to a higher authority. I hope this church never looks like Josh Tate. <laughs> what a mess. I'm doing my best, guys, but really, there is one higher and way more worthy of imitation than me. I'm with you on the same level in the org chart. And what Jesus says here is this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying this is what our department has to look like. This is the top of the org chart. This is the leader you look at and emulate. Because that's the way human beings work. We're all following some pace setter. We're all looking to the example of someone and trying to keep up. And Jesus says, this is the example that we should be following. Paul said, in one of the more challenging verses in the Bible for me as a pastor maybe, he said to one of the churches, follow me as I follow Christ. Ugh. I think Paul is just recognizing the reality that we do follow, that we emulate, we imitate. This is why there's so much emphasis in the Bible on church leaders being of good character. But this morning, we are studying in Philemon. There is a lot here that is instructive about the kind of leadership that Paul models for Philemon and that which he is encouraging Philemon to adopt as well. And it all comes back to this idea of Jesus saying, even the Son of Man, even the one who is worthy of all the trappings of authority and power and lordship, even that one came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So this demonstrates so well the heart of a gospel-shaped servant leader. For even the Son of Man didn't come in that way, which worldly leaders did. No, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christians take their cues in leadership from Jesus. He's the example. So husbands, what does it mean for you to be a servant leader of your home? Well, in Ephesians 5, it says to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, that's the example of leadership. In those gospel accounts that record this story of James and John making this request, Jesus compares his gospel-shaped servant leadership with the way non-believing great ones exercise their authority by lording it over their underlings. They're domineering self-serving and exploitive. Jesus states it flatly, but it shall not be so among you. The path to greatness, at least as God defines greatness, and the path to influence, at least as far as we are seeking to lead people toward what is closest to God's heart, lies in this. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Incidentally, this word in Mark 10 for slave, doulos, is the same word 
that, Jesus, that is used to describe Jesus in Philippians 2.7, saying he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And it's the same word to describe Onesimus' condition. He's a doulos, a slave. And that's interesting. Slavery, of course, is an important part of the background to Paul's letter to Philemon. And taken as a whole, Paul is encouraging his friend Philemon, in light of the gospel, to put himself in a position of humble service to his slave, to consider Onesimus as more worthy than himself. Paul encourages Philemon to welcome him, forgive him, and receive him as a brother. And Philemon, if you put yourself in the position of a slave to your slave, you will be a great leader. (laughs) This is the paradoxical approach that Christians take to leadership. And in that, we follow the example of Jesus. Uh, Let me pray. And then, um, worship team, you can stay down for a second. I have something I want to do here. Uh, But dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these lessons in leadership. We thank you, Lord, for the way that the gospel changes the way we see you, the way we see others, the way we look upon ourselves. Father, we remember back to our study of the Beatitudes when we saw the very first Beatitude was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we come before you this morning uh, with a, a heart posture of needy reliance on God, on you. And Father, that has radically changed the way we view ourselves, the way we view one another, the way we view you. And Father, in our, eff- in our efforts to, be, to influence others, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, like Paul, to love your people, to point them to a higher authority than ourselves, that we would put ourselves in a position of humble service to those who you've put in our lives, that we would count them as more worthy than ourselves, and we would look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, as it says in Philippians 2.4. God, that we would look upon one another as brothers and sisters, as your children, as our fellows. And God, we would approach one another not in a domineering way, but in a way that is governed by love, that makes our appeals on the basis of shared values and a shared belief in the gospel. And God, when you bring the church into conflict with those who are outside, who do not share a belief in the gospel, God, I pray that we would represent you well in the midst of that too, in the way that Jesus came to lost sinners. Help us to love uh, those who Um, help, Help us to lead people to Christ in much that same way as well. Father, we ask for your help in this, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.